Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 601, our season premiere of season six, where we're investigating the murder of Jaime Jim Melgar. The season premiere episode was short and sweet, as the premiere episodes typically are. In that first episode, we're kind of introducing you to the characters, telling you the basic version of the story. So for those of you that have maybe researched this case a little bit and you're wondering why wasn't this mentioned or why wasn't that mentioned or why haven't we gotten into other things yet, that's because that's not what we do in the first episode. The first episode is the general narrative that we've been told from the people who have pitched us the case. In this case, it was Helen Rose or Helena. Shoot, I hope I don't get that wrong. Sorry, Helen. The sister-in-law, I believe, of uh, Elizabeth, who is the daughter of Sandy and Jaime, who pitched the case to us. Uh, We've spoken to Sandy. We've spoken to the family members. So that's the basic version of the story. But now is the part, starting this week, where we start to really dig into the evidence and the facts of the case. And that's where things really get interesting. And I know this first episode already raised a bunch of questions, so let's go ahead and get started, Mike. Okay, Bob, let's do this. Okay, this first one comes from Ellen. She says, is there a place to read transcripts or see evidence, etc.? Uh, for this case? Yeah, for this case, like the uh, like Callahan for the West Memphis 3 case. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, eventually our website will be that place. We don't have anything up there yet because, like I said in the intro here, the first episode was just kind of telling a story. But as we start moving along here, we're going to be dissecting all the police files, the trial transcripts, all of those things. And as we go through them with every episode, Katie Ross, who does our website, will be putting those documents up on the website point by point, episode by episode. And also, we're still waiting. We were supposed to, by the middle of July, get the some of the files from the DA's office. And they are being very cooperative and helping us out a lot. But uh, they were supposed to mail us before we left. There was some sort of snafu with the mailing. We still don't have them. I spoke with the gentleman in the DA's office in Harris County on. Monday, or excuse me, on Friday, and uh, he thought they'd been mailed out. They're going to get them out to us. Um, they're giving us everything that we're asking for, but they're, due to the, the hurricane and the flooding, they're just now moving office buildings. And so we're in the middle of them trying to put together this order for us, they are, um, as far as giving us the documents we need, they're, they're shifting buildings and moving offices. So 
hopefully we'll have those very soon. But as we get them, as we've done in previous seasons, as we go uh, point by point and cover parts of the file, then we post, you know, so we may talk about a couple of lines from a police report. But in the, then on the website, we'll post the entirety of all of those documents. So we will be building that type of resource like we did with season two with that AIDS case, season three with Jesse Eldridge's case, where we got all of the uh, documents up on our website. But no, there is no Callahan's or anything like that for this case. Okay, next, Martha says, did Jim have clothes on when he was found? He did not. Jim was found completely nude in the master bedroom closet. Uh, his ankles were bound with a phone cord. There was a, a red rope looped around his chest and shoulders, and, and he was completely nude. At least that's my understanding. But again, keep in mind with a lot of these answers that you know we, we have sources for some of the stuff, but I don't have the original documents and photos yet to verify these things. So some of the answers that I'm giving you today may change over time as we get all of the official documents. Bethany wants to know, what were the actual bindings on Sandy, and how tight were they? The binding was, it was described to me as a scarf, uh, like it seemed like a satin or a silk scarf, uh, and they were extremely tight, according to the family members that got them off of her. In fact, Herman and Maria Melgar, Herman being Jaime's brother, uh, and his wife Maria are the ones that, that got Sandy out of the closet. They said they tried to untie the bindings, and the knots were so tight they couldn't get them off. They couldn't slip them over her hands, so they had to go get a pair of scissors to cut them off. Now, we do know that the, the bindings were, in fact, cut, and in some of the crime scene photos that we do have from other sources, uh, you can see the scissors sitting on the vanity table right outside the closet door, the scissors that they used to cut the bindings off of her. James wants to know, was there bruising on her wrists? That's sort of up for debate, and we're going to get into that more as we move along. You'll hear more about in this week's episode. There was no significant ligature marks, I can say that, on her wrist. Okay, and then Brittany says, in the first day or so that you first started looking into the case, what was your initial theory or thoughts? I didn't have any initial theory. My thoughts were, at first when the case came to me, that it just seemed, it seemed too obvious to be true. Uh, and then as I dug into it a little bit, realized that, it, boy, it's really, really seems unlikely that Sandy was the person that did this. Um, but then again, we haven't seen the prosecution's case yet. And so we, we have started working on some preliminary profiles of the crime scene and things like that. But again, like I, I keep mentioning, we don't have the full set of crime scene photos yet. We don't have the full set of the police files yet. So everything we're working off of is basically off of firsthand accounts that we've gotten from family members and witnesses, some information from, there was an episode on Dateline NBC about it, about this case. There's some you know news articles. So we're starting to build up an idea of a profile. But with that being said, we don't know that we have accurate information yet. So we, we haven't even come close to even starting to form a hypothesis yet at this point. Okay, and then going back to the crime scene, Rebecca says, were there dogs found inside the house, or were they still outside? I asked Marissa, the uh, the niece of Jaime that was in the house that night, that question this morning, and she said the dogs were found in the house, and they were loose. They were just running throughout the house. And the breed of those dogs was what? I, I'm not sure of the breed. I'll check on I know there were four dogs that were described as puppies, and I know that, according to Sandy from the bits of her interrogation video that we've been able to see so far, she said that the dogs were barking in the backyard. Jaime got out of the tub to go put them in the office, uh, apparently is where they would keep them kind of locked up when they were, they were being loud outside. But Marissa said they were not locked in the office. They were running free through the house. 
Alita says, is there evidence to suggest that Mr. Melgar made it back into the house with his leftovers? Did he complete that task fully before being assaulted? Yeah, I believe that there, and again, I'm not positive about what was found in the refrigerator. I feel like I I remember reading that they did find the leftovers from Los Cucos in the fridge. But yeah, I mean, that happened hours before. That was before they got into the bathtub. So according to Sandy's story, they had came in. He went back out to get the leftovers. She went and, and lit the candles and got the tub ready. Jaime put the leftovers in the fridge and grabbed some drinks and mixers and things. And they got like strawberries and whipped cream. And then they went back and got into the tub after that. So, yeah, that would that would have been, according to that story, it was hours before the murders occurred when he went out and got the leftovers and all that. He didn't leave the bathtub to go get them. Fiona says, how did the family who found them get into the house? Did they have a key or did they go through the garage? Was the garage door wide open or unlocked but shut? They went in through the garage. So the family noticed that one of the two garage doors, the big overhead doors, were open. Now, I've heard a couple of different versions of this. I need to go, again, get the police file to see for sure. I, th- I think it was Marissa's memory was that the garage door was partially open, not all the way open. But then I also found out that there were they were automatic garage door openers, um, so it would be kind of unlikely for it to be halfway open. Uh, I know in the crime scene photos we have seen, the, gra- the garage door is all the way open. We do know that he entered through the garage, and then there's the service door that goes be just a normal door that goes between the garage into the house was unlocked. And according to those family members and Liz, the daughter who lived in that house for years, that lock didn't work. It it, it hadn't worked in years, so it was just always unlocked. They would keep the garage doors down, uh, and that was more the security. But you could always just walk right in. And um, when Herman went in through that door. He said that it was just unlocked. He just walked through it. Okay, and then really quick, this one's just for me. We're bringing up a lot of names, and I think we've mentioned, and you mentioned them in the episode too, but uh, Marissa would be Herman's daughter, who is also Jim's niece, right? Correct, yeah. So the, the quick family tree of the witnesses, uh, just to kind of break that down again, uh, are, are the, the people involved here. So, of course, we know Jaime Melgar was the victim. His wife is Sandra, uh, or Sandy. They had one daughter, Elizabeth, or Liz, and then it was the the people that found them that day were Jaime's brother, Herman Melgar, with his wife, Maria, and they had their two daughters with them, Marissa and Monica. So if you can start to kind of track that that family tree. Now, later on, more of the family arrived uh, because uh, Jaime did have another brother named Erwin, who has four children, and I think at least two, if not Three of those kids were at the scene later that night, but the family that came and actually found Sandy and found Jaime's body was Jaime's brother Herman, his wife Maria, and their two daughters, Monica and Marissa, and their families. Marissa's family was there as well, but I believe they were out in a car in the driveway. Okay, Terry's got a couple questions here. First, were the jets in the bathtub still running when the family got there? I'm still looking into that. I asked Marissa that this morning, along with the question about the dogs. And she said she never actually went into the bathroom. Uh, when, when her dad had gone into the bathroom and found the chair and everything, she had turned back. Her mom went into the bathroom. So she wasn't sure about that. Sandy's account of the evening was that the jets were still running when she was in the tub. And I don't know about when she got out of the tub and went into the closets. I believe she had said that they were still running then, too, that she could still hear them running. But I, I'm not positive whether or not the jets were still running. And then how high was the bathwater? The bath water, we have seen a couple of crime scene photos. The bath water was about half full, but that's with no one in it. 
So I have a very similar tub like that in our house. And if, say, Becky and I are both in the tub, if we get out, it falls to about half. So I would say that with two people inside of it, it would have been full, empty. It was about half full or a little over half full. And then her last question is, was there blood found anywhere other than the closet? No, from what I know at this point, the only place where there was any blood was right near the bedroom closet, which is where Jaime's body was found. There was blood on him uh, on a chair just outside the closet door, some spattered onto the, the bed and all in that closet, but there was no blood found anywhere else. All right, this one's from Rebecca. Could a person gain access to the walk-in closet from anywhere apart from adjacent to the bathroom, such as a vent or another doorway to the hallway, etc.? No, there was one way in and out of both closets. So keep in mind, remember, they were found in two separate closets. It's an interesting layout of the house, and we I, I will put together a diagram probably when we we get to the crime scene uh, episodes, something we can put up on the website. But uh, to, to try to break it down for you, you know, with words, visually, the way it worked is you would walk into the master bedroom, which wasn't a huge master bedroom, and it was it, it was kind of cluttered. As you walked in, there was a treadmill on one side, there was a bed, dresser, a couple of nightstands, a couple chairs. But in the master bedroom, as you walked through the door, if you turned to the right, you would turn to the right again to go back into the master bedroom closet. That's where Jaime was found. So you go into the master bedroom in the back right-hand corner would be that closet. If you walk straight through the master bedroom, you'd walk into the master bath. And in the master bath, there was actually a bigger walk-in closet in the master bathroom. And, and what it seems to be is that the, the closet in the bathroom was Sandy's closet, and the closet in the bedroom was Jaime's closet, where he was found. Uh, but that closet where Sandy was found, though, there was one door in and out from the bathroom. There's no vents going in there. There's no other doorways going in there. As a matter of fact, on the, the adjacent wall into the bedroom, there was a big dresser on that wall. There was, there was only one way in and out of that closet. All right, Rebecca had a few more questions here. Next, did the detectives disbelieve the visitors who claimed the door had been sealed with a chair under the doorknob of the walk-in closet? Um, the best way I can answer that right now is to say that ultimately at trial, the theory was never that the family came in was lying, that the, the what they said about the chair and all that, they, they believed that to be accurate. Did the detectives disbelieve that Sandy had been bound in the way described? Uh, same story there. No, they did. They did not think that the family was lying. They believed that she was bound that way. But to be clear, the detectives, and we'll get into this later, but the detectives never interviewed Herman, Maria, Monica, or Marissa. So they don't know what they said. Last, she says, what was the weapon used, and where did they find it? In the jacuzzi tub that was still full of water, they found a large butcher knife in the tub under the water. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, Leanne says, how has Sandy fared in prison? She's had a pretty rough time. Um, number one, of course, she's dealing with her illness, and this is all new to her. You know, she's now, I think, 57 years old in, in prison. That's bad enough, but um, seems like she's been having some issues with her illnesses, with her medications, and she had a hard time calling out for a long time. And that's one thing to point out. We're not going to probably hear from Sandy much through here. I have spoken to Sandy on the phone a couple of times, but the prison she's in, the area of the prison she's in, is extremely loud, and Sandy is extremely soft-spoken. And when, when we recorded our first conversation with her, we, we couldn't hear at all. We had to ask her to repeat questions over and over and over again. We even tried cleaning up the audio afterwards from the recording, and it's just super hard to hear. It's just, you know, we've spoken to people in Kenny Snow in, in the prison down in Beaumont, and we've talked talk to Jesse Eldridge many times in Gatesville, and then, of, of course, Ed Eights in Cofield. And this is the loudest I've ever heard the background in a, in a prison. So, and, and for the longest time, the way their phone systems work is uh, it's voice recognition. So when, when they dial in a number, they put in their code, then they have to say something, um, their name or whatever, for voice recognition to activate their account to make the call. It's so people don't just steal people's passwords and stuff and, and spend their money on the phone system. And it was so loud and she's so soft-spoken for several months, Sandy couldn't couldn't get, use the phone because it wouldn't recognize her voice because it was so loud. But they finally got that that straightened out. But when we did talk to her, she's she's doing okay, but she's uh, it, it's it's a struggle for her. It seems to be so. We've never spoken to anyone or dealt with a case that's so new. You know, when we when we start dealing with Ed Eights, he was seventeen, eighteen years into his prison sentence. The same thing with Jesse Eldridge and Ken yeah, Snow. Yeah, she's been in for less than a year, right? Yeah, she was convicted less than a year ago. Her conviction was August 23rd, uh, and today we're recording this is August 1st, but August 23rd is 17. So, yeah, she's only been in prison for about 11 months, so this is all very, very, very new to her and very much a shock to her system. This one's from Wendell. Was the lotion bottle found, and if so, where? Yes, the lotion bottle was found, and it was found in the closet right where Sandy said she was putting lotion on. Lori says, my husband's question, why leave a potential witness? Jim was brutally overkilled, but why leave Sandy unharmed and able to potentially ID somebody? That is a very good question, and that will play heavily into our profile once we really start to analyze the crime scene. This one's from Dee, who happens to be married to a Jehovah's Witness. She writes, killing someone is a lot more of a no-no than divorce. Jehovah's Witnesses do not, quote, shun. Divorce is frowned on, but murder? That's a mortal sin. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that after you die, you, quote, sleep until Jesus renews his kingdom. Then the righteous will rise and walk on paradise earth for eternity. I doubt someone who believes this is going to think murder is okay. So she gave us a little summary of what she knows of the Jehovah's Witnesses and what they practice. Her question is, how did somebody with lupus and all of her conditions have the strength to kill her husband? To address the Jehovah's Witness aspect of this, and we're going to get into this later, but the basics of it are exactly right. I mean, to, to make the argument that the motive for killing her husband was that she wanted a divorce and didn't want to be, quote, shunned by the, the members of the church, so therefore she killed him, is really just out there to me. I mean, like you said, it's, you know, if, if divorce is, is frowned upon, certainly murder is frowned upon as well. And if she was so devout that she cared that much about what the people of the church thought, you know, somebody, then, then why would they, they consider murder? It, it just doesn't add up. 
as far as the Jehovah's Witness Church, uh, I had a few, two or three very, very good friends uh, that, that were in the Jehovah's Witness Church uh, when I was younger, and uh, I've gotten a lot of messages and emails from people in the church. And what I'm finding is that it, it depends where, what, what church you're going to, who the pastor is, I guess, as far as what the church is like. Because I've heard a lot of different accounts. Some people say, a lot of people say, like like Dee did here, that the Jehovah's Witnesses don't shun people or, or excommunicate people. But then other people have said that they absolutely do do that. And I'm not here to debate about the church. The reason I bring up the church is because the prosecutor brought up the church. And to be honest, that was one of the things that caught my attention about the case. Uh, for those of you that have known me for a long time, you know that I can't stand bigotry and I hate a bully. And when I'm hearing an argument being made and using someone's faith, and, and that was the case with, you know, if you look through our history, we've had a Muslim and a non Sayed in season one, we've had Christians. We've had uh, the the whole uh, the Wiccan and Satanism and all the different uh, the um, ceremonial magic of season five. You know, these are a lot of people who were persecuted because of whatever they believe, and I think that anybody should be able to believe whatever they want. I support anyone in any faith or lack thereof, and the fact that that was used against Sandy certainly got my attention. So, regardless of what her church, uh, her the, the which Kingdom Hall, I, I think they call them, that Sandy and Jaime were were members of. Regardless of what their practices were, I don't think unless there is some really direct evidence there, it's not relevant at all to to the case. But it was made to be relevant to the jury in the case, and that's why we're we're discussing it. Keeley's got a couple questions. First, she wants to know about motive. Is there any evidence that either of them wanted out of the marriage? Any evidence of anyone else having a motive to attack the deceased? There is no evidence whatsoever that either Jaime or Sandy wanted out of this marriage. No. As far as anyone else, we haven't even got into alternative suspects yet, so I don't know. Okay, next she says, is there any evidence of similar burglaries or robberies in the area involving one or more offenders? Yeah, there's a few that we'll be looking into as we move along. Next she says, what was the time of death? I don't know yet. You know, we don't have the medical examiner's report. Again, I, you know, I, I know what I've seen on TV, but that, that doesn't matter. So we need to see the ME's report and see what they had to say and some of the trial testimonies and things like that to, to figure that out. Did any neighbors on the street witness their movements that night or hear anything or even the dogs barking? Yeah, so there was a neighbor named Scott Lacey that lived right there, a neighbor. They live right there in the neighborhood. And he said that he did, in fact, speak to the Melgars when they were on their way out to dinner that night. So he'd interacted with them before they went. He described them as being in a great mood, excited about their evening. You know, Sandy hadn't been feeling well, so they, you know, they, were, pretty, they were pretty stoked that they got to go out and go out to dinner and have a nice night. And so he said, yeah, he did interact with them. It was before they went to dinner on their way out. And then uh, the neighbor next to them, according to the prosecutor from the little bit that I've seen and read, uh, the neighbor next door complained about the Melgar's dogs barking regularly all the time, and that neighbor said that she did not hear the dogs barking that night. Next, she says, what are the witnesses' detailed accounts about how she was found, the position of the chair, her bindings, etc.? Also, are there any photos? There are lots of photos. We don't have them yet. You know, we've, we've seen little bits of clips we've seen through the Dateline episode and, and online and things. But no, we, we haven't seen the photos yet. The, the accounts were 
you know, we, we've kind of heard them so far secondhand because Herman and Maria Melgar, who were the two that actually went and untied Sandy or cut the bindings off of her and got her out of the closet and then helped, helped her get dressed, neither of they don't speak any English at all. So I've, I've got that information from their daughter, Marissa, who is so it's kind of third hand. When we make our, our, our trip down to Texas, which is coming up very soon, when we go to Houston, I'm going to be interviewing Herman and Maria in person with uh, probably Marissa translating for us, or Liz if she's able to make it down there at the same time, uh, so we can get the firsthand account. But as far as the, the, what we've been told so far, again, there was the you know the issue of the fact that she had kind of soiled herself because she had been there for that long, which is you know indi- indicative of being in there for a long time, also indicative of a grand mal seizure, and that the bindings were so she was laying on the floor, she seemed very disoriented. They tried to untie her, they couldn't get the bindings untied. Uh, Maria went to go find scissors in the office, got scissors and and cut her out, and that she was just screaming, where's Jim? And then she immediately took off running through the house looking for Jim. The chair was, like like, a, like was described, the chair was propped up against the doorknob. I think that's it. There was, other than you know, what we've already, already described, they just, you know, they saw the chair on the doorknob, they pulled it off, they opened it, and she was inside, and, you know, she was disoriented and screaming for help. Next, she says, did anyone carry out an admittedly not very scientific experiment to see if she could have pulled the chair to the closet and bound her own hands and feet? Yes, and we'll we'll be getting into that, uh, but I can say that the prosecutor at trial made a demonstration for the jurors about how that could be done, and, and also the Harris County Sheriff's Department participated in the experiments there. Next, she wants to know, was anything stolen from the house? It appears so, yes. It, it looks like um, there's a whole list of things, and again, we'll get into this when we get into the crime scene episodes, but yeah, there was there was some jewelry missing. It sounded like some laptops, phones, iPods, an Xbox, uh, DVD player, small TV. So there was there were several things that were noted by Liz that were missing from the house and then also by Sandy later. Um, the house, you know, there was a lot of drawers and things pulled out and a lot of things ransacked, but there's a lot of stuff left as well. Also... The wallet, either the wallets of just Jaime or both their wallets were found on the bed and there was no cash in them. And the, the families all said they always carried cash. So there's, there's no guarantee of how much cash was taken, if any, but um, the wallets were found on the bed. Next, she says, were there phones, tablets, computers, etc. examined to check call records or any evidence of contact with other relevant parties or between them? Any evidence through cell site to show their movements at relevant times? I don't have all of the information as far as if they if they use the cell phones to track movements. I assume they did. I do know that you know they turned over. They didn't. Sandy signed a consent search and let them have all this stuff that night. But I, I know that they they examined all of their computers, tablets, and phones. They took a lot of those um, into evidence because I know there was something we were talking about the other day that they had they found out through you know conversations through apps. So. Uh, the police did have access to all of that, and in a nutshell, what I can tell you right now until we really dig into this stuff is that they found nothing incriminating regarding the crime on any of those devices. How about their financial records to see if they had any difficulties? Yes, their financial records were obtained by the police, and they were very, you know, when, I, when I say very well off, I don't mean they, you know, they, were, they were filthy rich or anything like that, but... Jaime and Sandy, they didn't believe in debt. Everything they had was paid for other than, I think, two of their rentals they might have owed a little bit on. But the other house was paid for. The rental house was paid for. At least one of them, maybe even two of them, were were completely paid for. They had a hefty savings account and retirement investments and, of course, thriving businesses. So they were there was no financial issues whatsoever. 
Okay, Will says, what about this case drew you in and you said, yes, this is the case I want to tackle this season? There was a lot, as, as, as you know, Mike, as we were screening cases, there were a few that caught our attention, and uh, we may still end up doing those cases. You know, I, we'd been, we've been in Texas for a while, and so we were, you know, we, we had the, the break going to Arkansas, but uh, with the West Memphis 3 case, but, you know, we're looking to move somewhere else just for kind of a change of pace, change of scenery, and also for me to, you know, a lot of what we're doing is trying to reform the criminal justice system and educate. Well, I've I've got one hell of an education on the Texas criminal justice system, but I don't know much about other areas. And so anyway, we were looking and, and we were narrowing down to within three of cases we were thinking about when this case was pitched to us. And when I read through it, it just, you have to understand that when we get these cases on the surface and that first email that we get, everybody sounds innocent because whoever is pitching it to you, of course, believes they're innocent. Uh, and this one was no different. And, and, and I have a process that I go through when we're screening the cases as far as questions that I need the people that send them to ask. And, and I, you know, I do things like I want you to make the argument for the prosecution to me without, without arguing it. I want you to tell me with the strength of the prosecution's case, things like that. We have a whole process we go through. And so we did that with this one. And this one, we were a little lucky because it was new, very recent. And, you know, there was a lot of media on it. And then we found out there was a Dateline NBC episode. So we went ahead and, and watched that. And it was just, you kept waiting for the ball to drop. You know, there's, there seems to always be that, okay, well, it looks like, yeah, it looks like they, they may be innocent and there's, there's a pretty good case for innocence here. I don't know yet, but we got to keep looking. And then it's like, oh, well, this person was, you know, the, the whole thing happened while they were committing a burglary or they were a drug dealer, whatever. None of that, and understand, none of that means we're not going to take the case, but it's all things we consider. Like, were they, were they guilty of something else that led to this? There's just a lot of layers to us deciding on a case. And this is this was the first case that I looked at where and and I say this with uh, with the understanding to everyone and the caveat that I haven't fully investigated the case yet. So once we start investigating, the, we're going where the evidence leads us. And if that leads us to guilt, then we go to guilt. If it leads us to innocence, we go to innocence or alternate suspects or wherever it goes. But through the screening process, where I just had very little doubt. It was just like, man, this is this really, really seems like a case of actual innocence, like blatant actual innocence. I can't see a motive, anything like that. The, the closest case that I've seen to this so far would be Ed Aitz's case, where there was just no reason for him to have been involved in that. And then, of course, Jesse Eldridge was kind of the same, but not really exactly the same now that I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking about it as I'm thinking back as I'm talking. But 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 that's what drew me to the case, and also you know what 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 immediately jumped at out at me as religious persecution just really chapped my ass, so to speak. I just I I really can't stand that. And when I saw the prosecutor making that argument, that it was something I want to take. Also, you know, as we've never done a female uh, defendant before, so that that certainly caught my interest, and I thought that would be interesting to to go through that and learn how things are like on the in a, in a female prison. Things like everything's everything was just a little bit different about it, but. There was, a, and the other thing was that really drew me into this case when we finally made the decision was it's so new, and that really means the case is very solvable. You know, there there is evidence that is out there. There are witnesses that are still alive and around. There's just, you know, we're we're not dealing with you know, geez, was the was the blood evidence preserved from 25 years ago? Can we still do DNA testing? Everything is so new, and so that was a big part of what drew us into eventually deciding on this case for season six. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. And here's our last question from Marquise. Is Ed Eights free yet? <laughs> no, but he very well may be by the time you hear this episode. So let me give you guys a little bit of update on that. Um, I spoke with Ed on Saturday. Last Saturday, for be almost a week ago when you guys hear this on Friday. He is in super high spirits. We're talking to Kim and talking about what things are going to be like when he gets out. And so this is the process. The things kept, kept getting pushed back with the class Ed was taking. You know, they were on lockdown. There was a holiday. There was an instructor that was out of town. This for The day you're hearing this episode, which will be August 3rd, is the last day of Ed's transition class, the class that he has to take to transition out. Now, Ed told me they're not letting him take the final exam for that class until the following Tuesday, which will be August 7th. And so that's when they'll take the final exam. The way it is supposed to work, and I say that in air quotes, is that once that final exam is taken and the certificate is put into the system that Ed has completed his course, from that point forward, it's supposed to be between five and 10 days, Ed will be released. Now, that being said, he said there's people that were in the class with him that have already been sent home in the middle of the class. So we never know what's going to happen. I would love to tell you guys all the exact date and time he's going to be released and even where, because it would be nice to have a crowd there. And so I will announce that to you as soon as we know. Uh, and in just a second here, I'll talk to you a little bit more about that too. But so all we know right now is f- supposedly five to 10 days after August 7th. So that would put us somewhere between like the, the 12th and the, the 17th is when Ed should be released. So here in just a couple of weeks. But we will have very little notice. The way it works for Ed is they will transfer him to one of two units, and we don't even know which unit it's going to be at. He could go to a unit closer to Houston or one closer to to Dallas. They will, as he put it, they will put him on the chain at 3 or 4 in the morning. That's when they do transfers. So they'll literally come into his room, his his bunk, and tell him, Eight, it's time to go. Let's go. And they'll transfer him to this other prison. He can't even call Kim. Hopefully one of his buddies will be able to call Kim and tell her what's going on. We have to keep continually looking in the TDCJ computer system to see when it has a release date on there. So they're going to transfer him to one of these units. Then we should be able to know what day in time, hopefully, he's going to be released and from which place. At that point, I'll be immediately getting on a plane to get down there. I think Allison from the Innocence Project of Texas uh, uh, will be heading that way. She's going to. Wherever it's at, she's going to have a long drive from Lubbock, Texas. Uh, we're going to go get there, and and he'll be released. We'll announce that as soon as we can, but just know you may have 24 hours notice when that's going to happen. Um, as far as people that have asked about attending, yeah, it would be cool to have people there, but understand when we do this, 
Kim will be there, of course, and their family, and Allison and I will be there, that Ed's asked us to be there when, when he walks out, and we will have, you know, any crowd that gathers that's there can be there to cheer him on, but we'll have you back just a little ways, just because, remember, Ed's been in prison for 20 years, and to walk out and get mobbed by, by 50 or 100 people is just, it's, it's a little much. And so what we're going to do, what I'd like to do is, is to give Ed some space, and if Ed decides he wants to come out and address everybody and talk to everybody, that's okay. But we want to just kind of keep him back. And we'll talk about all that for anybody that's there. But this is this is coming up very soon. It should be within, hopefully, within two weeks of you hearing this episode. Maybe sooner. But we will keep you up to date on that. And uh, very soon, Ed Eight is going home. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.